Welcome to the latest Fifth Step podcast. Today I'll be talking to Fifth Step CEO Darren Ray uh, about the latest developments uh, with the General Data Protection Regulation or GDPR as it's uh, normally known by. Uh, but it took 120 years for Noah to build, build the ark in, in Genesis apparently. Uh, and now we've got 100 days to prepare for the GDPR, which is uh, coming up in May. Uh, in fact, it's 97 and a half days, uh, to be precise. So I just wanted to speak today to Darren um, about the uh, how CIOs and IT leaders and obviously C-suite uh, leaders should be preparing for the GDPR. So, Darren, it's over to you. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Yes, now obviously uh, we're going to broadcast this as a podcast, so it may not be 97 and a half days left, or there definitely won't be 97 and a half days left by the time that you're listening to this. Um, so what we've tried to do is we've put together, um, I think it's probably about eight or nine points of items that you need to have in place or you, that you should have, been, have in place by the time GDPR goes live. And if they're not on your list or not part of your GDPR project at this point in time, then you need to make sure that they're added to your project as quickly as possible uh, and that you're getting them um, put in place and not just the box the boxes ticked, but the actual processes and requirements met as well so that you don't, uh, so your organization doesn't find itself being fined or penalized um, by the GDPR in future. Okay, so uh, you know, what are some of the things that firms should be looking for, uh, looking at, uh, and obviously making sure in place or going to be in place in time for May the twenty fifth this year? So the first one uh, that we've uh, that we've noted is probably the the most important one, and really ties into the rest of uh, the points. But you must make sure that your personal and sensitive personal data. Um, privacy and protection is in place. So making sure that you know what your personal data is, know what your sensitive personal data is, and making sure that it is protected um, to the best of your organization's uh, ability in alignment with the risk um, that, you know, that the, the, uh, the risk categorization and the risk assessment of the data. So what are, what are, what are the key, key areas? I mean, prob no, Privacy is, um, or privacy notices, are, notices are, are, um, are in the text or documents that inform data subjects. I mean, that's one of the things that I've been reading about. What, what, do, what do CIOs need to know about that? Well, not just CIOs, but the entire, you know, um, senior leadership team and um, and boards um, need to be aware that, um, you know, a good, strong privacy notice needs to be in place. And that needs to be aligned with what your organization does and how they use the data. So not just a you can't just use a boilerplate uh, privacy notice. Um, but there's certain key text that needs to be in there, you know, things about how the data is used, why it's needed, um, who will process it, how long it will be kept for. Um, if it's processed by other people, you need to make sure that that's included in there. And if it's processed in other countries, you need to keep it in there. And you also need to have uh, details of who your data protection officer is or the contact details for your data protection officer um, within that privacy notice too. I think that's, that's probably a key thing, isn't it? Because uh, that's probably my my error in a way, but just limiting it to CIOs. But what what seems to be coming up in a lot of the conversations I've been having with people is is the whole cultural um, issue of GDPR and getting your, your organisation culturally fit for purpose. Um, it's not just a, a techie thing at all, is it? Oh no, not at all, um, Chris. No, um, you're very much. There's a um, a new awareness needs to come within organizations about the personal data they collect and and how 
the organization is supposed to use it so what its legitimate uses are um, and indeed how it is be, being used and those two things should align and remembering as well that the privacy notice should be displayed to data subjects before they provide data um, you know that's uh, that's a key aspect in some industries that's not necessarily possible um, in recruitment for example where people are perhaps emailing in their CVs or resumes um, into a uh, into a recruiter before you know without the recruiter um, asking for that information uh, they can't necessarily give the consent ahead of time um, but they need to have processes to ensure that the data subject understands their rights and understands all the aspects of the um, uh, you know all their uh, aspects of their privacy notice as soon as possible thereafter because I think I think we're all becoming a bit more aware. Well, I, I think I, I certainly am. I'm having spoken to you over the last couple of years about GDPR and when it comes to talking about personal data, um, we're all becoming much more aware of our rights, aren't we? And that's going to be one of the key areas that GDPR touches on the data subjects' rights. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely, it is, and that's uh, uh, you know a major part of um, ensuring that you're ready. In fact, we'll talk about that and probably in a little bit more. Um, detail as we go through because that touches on a number of different areas that organizations are having to make sure that they're um, they're compliant but you know I wouldn't be surprised um, if there's not instances of um, you know PPI calls um, you know in the U in the UK we had a uh, something called uh, personal protection insurance um, and there was a, a a scandal basically um, in the in the UK and lots of people uh, ended up getting their money back or getting compensation for having been sold this insurance which was um, not necessarily uh, particularly useful or appropriate to the to the cause. Does that mean, so, no obviously I get these phone calls quite a lot although less so over the last few 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 weeks and months um, I want to wonder if that's actually maybe linked to GDPR coming up but does, does, does that mean that if someone you know pesters me with phone calls for PPI or saying that I've had a traffic accident two years ago, whatever, if I get a call like that, does that mean I could potentially take people to court? Because that, that information, they've received that information in ways that they shouldn't have done? Uh, yeah, it's possibly true, um, Chris. Uh, obviously, if you make a formal request for your personal data to be deleted, they, they need to be honouring that and, uh, and removing you from the list. Um, if they're then continuing to call you, then obviously they're not processing that, and they're not um, they're not honouring the rights of the data subject, and therefore you um, you know you have uh, the right to go back or to make a complaint to uh, the Data Protection Authority, which in the UK is the Information Commissioner's Office. Okay, and another question I had actually: I was in a uh, an insurance market, a London market insurance event a few weeks ago, the uh, Tintech London market event. And I was on the table. There was an interactive session we were on. Wasn't to do with GDPR actually. I was talking about you no know, robotic process automation of all things, but um, it touched on GDPR. There were a couple of underwriters on my table at the time who, who were pretty blasé about the impact of GDPR, saying, "Well, it's not really going to affect us at all because you know in the market where we don't have high enough volumes, um, it's not like the personal lines market." And then, and in any case, what, what the lady I was talking to said uh, you have to have justifiable cause um, to request uh, information from a uh, from a, 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 proce a processor i guess is that right um justifiable cause is a is a is a is a funny interpretation of that i would suggest because um justifiable cause could be me complaining about the way that my data has been processed by an insurer or another organization so um you know justifiable cause doesn't just come from 
um, you know, uh, a regulator's interpretation of what is, um, you know, what is fair or what is right or or something like that. Um, it it comes from, you know, it comes from the, um, you know, it comes from people being able to complain about it, uh, and then the regulator um, will do some investigation. It certainly, if they're getting a number of complaints, they're going to do um, more investigation about that. Obviously, so it's. Um, you know, to my, um, you know, my advice to that uh, that underwriter or to that person, um, in this instance, would be actually, you know, you need to comply with this um, on the basis that um, someone will eventually complain about the way you're processing their data um, if you're not processing it in accordance with the GDPR. And if even if you are processing it with, you know, in accordance with the GDPR, if they make a complaint, then at least you can demonstrate that you're processing it in accordance. If they make a complaint and you're and you're not doing anything in accordance with GDPR, or you're you're not fully in compliance with GDPR, then the Data Protection Authority has the right then to you know do further investigation and to understand the extent to which you are compliant and um, and how you've been misprocessing their uh, their data. And yeah. if you get one of those, you know, once you start getting into that territory, then you're, you know, you're starting to head towards fine territory then. Okay. So, I mean, once there are a number of, I mean, the cornerstone uh, to GDPR, as far as I can tell, is going to be uh, consent, isn't it? Um, that's one of, one, of, one of the main rights under the upcoming GDPR. Yeah. Um, so, do, do, you know, in your conversations that you've been having with people, you know, across, across sectors, do people um, understand the, the, the concept of, of, of gaining consent? They understand the, the concept of it. Some people uh, don't think they need to when they probably do. Um, but one of the common um, misconceptions or pieces that doesn't get um, enough attention is um, documenting and recording the consent. So being able oh. to demonstrate that someone gave their consent, you know, on the... 16th of February at you know 11 o'clock in the morning um, you know being able to demonstrate that fact is you know is a key part of the GDPR because um, you know having a web page that requires consent is all is all well and good but at some point in time if someone comes back and contests that they actually gave consent for you to use their mar their information for marketing purposes then you have to be able to demonstrate that actually they did tick that tick box and that you recorded the tick on the tick box and that if um they uh, felt that that would have been um misrecorded or they've misclicked or something like that then obviously they had a a means um to execute their their rights and to be able to undo that tick box, if you like, and to record that they withdrew their consent. See, now, if it was me, I mean, my, my approach to this would be just to outsource the responsibility. I mean, just, you know, you could just ship this off to you know, a supplier car and you're a vendor. Uh, well, that's a good point. And, um, and, and Chris, you know, you've, you've heard me say this um, on more than one occasion. Um, you know, it's increasingly true with regulation around the world um, that you can't outsource uh, responsibility so you can outsource the function but not the responsibility so if you hire a third party to ensure that you're um that they're recording all of your uh, consent statements you have to make sure that they are they are doing so accurately uh, that you have good contracts between the yourselves and them to um you know to be able to demonstrate that they will adhere to the gdpr as well and this gets I mean, this gets even more complex if your vendor happens to be overseas or outside of the the, EE, the EEA, the uh, European Economic Area. 
So if they're outside of um, the, the normal boundaries of where GDPR is applied, then it starts to get even more complicated. And it's uh, it's an area where um, Fifth Step is um, helping a number of companies with at the moment. It's helping them understand uh, what their vendor contracts actually say, where they need, um, which contracts need further attention, um, and working with you know, law firms to actually help this take place. I mean, how long is the, cause one of the things that's changing is the reporting timescale, isn't it? Um, what, what, what is the updated timescale going to be in terms of reporting a data breach? Yeah, so um, uh, for a data breach, um, you, you have to be able to report um, the breach and the details of the breach within 72 hours of discovery. So that's that's three days. Um, How long was it before? Uh, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a, a set uh, requirement for breach notification previously um, within um, the European data protection. Now, um, this 72-hour period, though, is a is a period that a number of regulators are now settling on as a reasonable and accepted period of time. And in fact, it's sort of been the best practice um, that we've been recommended to recommending to clients for some time um, that you ought to be able to um, get to um, the point where you understand the breach and be able to notify those either you know regulators such as uh, data protection authority or if you're regulated by um you know by by other regulators the financial services authority or something like that um that you can actually report through to um the appropriate body within a 72 hour period um so three days is also or 72 hours is also the period uh within the new york department of financial services requirement that's the nycrr 500 uh, requirement which is has some overlap with gdpr in some areas but that's the same time frame that they've decided on as well and that the other interesting aspects um about your your breach response is the initial triage uh period you know within that 72 hour period um you have to be able yeah. to um, assess the nature of the breach so you have to understand the size of the breach so how many personal data records have been lost um, the likely impact of the breach on the data subject so what type of data have you lost you know is it um, highly personal data is it personal sensitive data um, you know what kind of information is it that's been lost um, the nature of the breach um, so was it a, a physical theft you know was some uh, hard disk or a usb drive or something like that stolen uh, was it a uh, a cyber attack you know was the organization hacked uh, and you need to understand that so that you can understand that the the threat is actually over or is still taking place and need to be able to obviously take the action appropriate um, and you need to list out all the action that's been taken so far too so all of this uh, information has to be gathered within 72 hours so you need a um, you know organizations need to have a data breach incident response plan ready and rolling is that possible? I mean, sure. I mean, 72 hours, I mean, a lot of people are probably going to say, well, can even an incident response plan cope within 72 hours? A lot of people are just going to say, we haven't got the time. It's going to be such a fast moving and dynamic environment. We'll just have to wing it, won't we? Yeah. I mean, Chris, you and I have spoken uh, previously about the benefits of, uh, of winging it. And really, in, in response to these kinds of um, these kind of incidents, you, you can't wing it. Uh, you need to have a process because you need to be bringing the right people together at the right point. They need to be focused on what they're doing and what they need to achieve and what timescale they have to achieve it within. And if 
um, you don't want to be bringing together a, a, a team who is you know, cold to the process and cold to the objectives and everything else. You don't want to be making this up as you go along. You need to have a process that's defined and, you know, at least uh, as tested as it can be, if, if not, you know, tested in um, in reality, but tested, you know, um, simulations being run or something like that to actually make sure it's suitable for your processes. Okay, so we talked about processes. What about all the actual, you know, the hardware and the software within organisations? If you've got you know, lots of legacy systems, which is particularly true, well, probably true for a large number of bodies and institutions out there. But, but will, you, will computer systems need to change, or you know, will yeah. there be fundamental changes required for those? Yeah, absolutely, they will. Um, you know, computer systems, potentially computer infrastructure, but certainly computer systems are going to need to um, to change to ensure they're they're GDPR compliant. Um, you know, primarily they need to make sure they can um, cater for all the rights of the data subjects. Um, for in-house systems, written systems, that means that um, the in-house development teams are, are probably at this moment very very busy making those changes, um, implementing um uh the request for change uh if they haven't started on that yet um then that's probably something they need to start on fairly shortly i would imagine in order to get all the way through that process if the systems have been bought uh by external third party you know, from external third parties then it really goes back to the vendor management piece where you know you need to make sure that your contracts are in place you need to be assessing the software and making sure it's still fit for purpose if it's coming from a um, a supplier or a vendor who is outside of Europe or perhaps isn't uh, fully aware of the European data protection requirements, then um, you, you know you may have to guide them through some of the re those requirements. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to be um, uh, assured that the computer systems that you're using are fit for purpose after the GDPR goes live. Yeah, I mean we've been talking here about you know. Um uh, I mean, we're, we're talking here for in the in, in in the UK. I'm in I'm in London. You're out in you know, deepest, darkest Suffolk uh, right now, aren't you? Um, but um, you know, we've got a lot of American uh, listeners or people from around the world. Um, you know, I don't I don't know if you know what their knowledge of this is going to be, but a lot of them may imagine that they're, they're not going to be affected by this. But that's not true, is it? No, that's not true. Um, if you are an organization, irrespective of where you're based, if you're processing uh, personal data or sensitive personal data, and processing basically means doing anything with it. A viewing data is considered processing. Storing data is considered processing. You know, reporting or doing any form of analysis on data using either computer systems or people is considered to be processing. And if you're processing European personal data, Okay, so that means uh, data belonging to those who are resident within Europe. Okay, um, irrespective of your geographic location, you have to be compliant with the GDPR. So that means many um, organisations in the US and FISTAP has many clients within the United States who, um, you know, some who have come to us relatively recently in the last six months uh, for help uh, around GDPR. Amongst other things, um, you know, some of them uh, we're running projects for at the moment to um, help them implement, make, um, uh, you know, managing major change for them, um, you know, relating so, to GDPR and other things. Sure. So, um, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, probably lots of people at the moment are probably upgrading their their, their IT systems as we speak. 
So have you got any advice you know, on how they should factor in the GDPR requirements if they're looking to build some fancy new fit-for-purpose system that's going to be future-proof for the next like three or four years? You know, what do they need to factor in when it comes to GDPR? Well, um, first and foremost, run it as a project if, you, if they're not already. Um, that's absolutely key. Make sure they've got a, uh, an allowance and uh, an understanding of the GDPR within the project so that they can make sure that the data being collected is the minimal required. And, you know, absolutely key, and we touched on this a little bit earlier on, is making sure that they're able to process the um, the the data subjects right. So, you know, ensuring that um, the right to be informed is fully fulfilled, um, you know, that the data subject is presented with um, the privacy notice before they provide personal data, you know, making sure that personal data is only retained for the right period of time, all those kind of things. You know, those need to be designed in from the outset, along with, um, you know, something really impacts IT departments, but um, implement, implementing privacy by design. So ensuring that the systems that are being designed are not having uh, privacy retrofitted to them, but actually they come out of the box being you know, GDPR aware, whether they're being, being written in-house or indeed are coming from third-party suppliers. And the other key aspect, of course, is you know business continuity, which is so vital nowadays. I mean, you you can't afford to be you know offline for even uh, an hour in in the in the modern world. So, what 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 does it need? What needs to be done in terms of like you know business continuity policies or plans? Yeah, I mean, making sure that they're there first of all. I mean, many people think that uh, GDPR is just about keeping the data um, private. Well, that's obviously a very big part of it, but it's also about making sure that personal data is safe. Um, and that means having good business continuity plans and policies in place to ensure that data is backed up appropriately, that it's only transported to the right places um, and that it's used in the right ways um, and not misused, or, you know, not misupdated or updated in the wrong scenarios. So making sure that the, the quality um, of the product that you're using, be that in-house software again, or whether that be a third-party software, making sure that it's not erroneously updating um, someone else's data. You know, what you don't want is a scenario where, you know, your system is, um, when you search for John Smith and you find a John Smith, it ends up updating the records for all John Smiths. That'd be a fairly catastrophic error, an unusual one these days, but um, it would be a fairly ca catastrophic error to be uh, um, encountering and would most certainly mean that you'd breach um, the GDPR. Um, but it would also mean that you'd have to go back to your backups and be able to restore from a backup. So making sure that you've got all that data there, that should such a strange scenario as that occur, that you can actually recover. So do you, you know, do, do this even you know, encompasses stuff like, you know, your data archives, does it? I mean, you know, there, there must be, you know, terabytes or petabytes. So I, I don't know which is the larger of those two. I really don't. But uh, there must, whatever it is, whatever it is there's, a, there's a lot of it out there with ending in bytes. So uh, you know you, you you need you need to you know you need to back that up and keep that in archives. Is that impacted as well? Yes, it is, Chris. Yeah. So um, your backups are there, um, but um, what you're really talking about there is your retention policies and your ability yeah. to adhere to your retention policies. Really comes down to um, you know making sure that a you're only keeping the data for the period of time. Um, that you said that you needed it for. Um, you know, beyond that, you should be deleting the data. So if that, you know, if you're archiving that data or if you're including it in 
um, you know, if, that, if you're keeping data in backup on backup tapes or other media um, for you know many years, you need to be factoring that into your retention policy and how you're actually going to be able to destroy that data, um, you know, when the time comes. So who, who is uh, going to be responsible? Uh, sorry, for, in a, from an in-house point of view, um, you know, obviously we've got the CIO, we have IT leaders, but who who's going to be the guy or or, or lady or whatever who who, who, who take who takes the rap for this if things go wrong? Is it possible well, to appoint someone? Ultimately, um, Chris is the board, of course. Oh. Um, you know, um, you know, ultimately the organisation will be. Um, you know, if it's found to be in breach and not able to adhere to uh, the laws of the land, then it's going to, um, you know, it will come down to fines and um, all sorts of other reputational damage and all those kind of things. Um, but, you know, the key aspect is to have someone um, in place who's able to keep a watching brief on this. And that's um, in most organizations, that's going to come down to the data protection officer. It could be the chief information security officer, that's uh, CISO or CISO. Um, so it could be one of those two people. They very often um, serve a pretty similar role, um, really, in many organizations. Um, but the roles and responsibilities of uh, a data protection officer are to ensure that the organization is compliant and to be passing that information to the board um, to guide them um, and to inform them about um, decisions that they should be making about um, you know changes in processes or spending money um, to um, you know to enhance areas that need enhancing for uh, data protection and things like that um, so uh, having a DPO is something that most organizations most larger organizations are going to have to have um, particularly are they doing that at the moment? I mean, is that something you're finding even for larger organisations and even for small, smaller organisations? That must be a bit of a considered quite a, a, an, an expensive outlay, if not a luxurious outlay. Is that right? Uh, yeah, some organisations are certainly thinking about it like that. I mean, um, so fifth step deals with those organisations, um, you know, well, all kinds of organisations, but one of the services that fifth step offers um, and take the opportunity to mention that whilst I'm uh, whilst we're here and you've asked that question um, Chris yeah we provide a data protection officer service so that means that um, you know that we'll provide the expertise who can oversee and guide and um, provide that level of support to organizations and we do that for organizations of all sizes and it's a flexible and fractional service you know check out our website the, the full details are on there I don't want to make the podcast about uh, um, yeah, yeah. about that Obviously, the information is out people like. Moving on, there seems to be some confusion as well you know, from reading that I've done on this on, on this subject. I mean, who who does a a, a CISO or a CISO or DP you know, data protection officer report to? Is that should that be the CIO or should that be directly to the board? In your opinion? Yeah, you're right. There is a little bit of a controversy around that. Um, and my recommendation is that um, that it would be to the board because um, the the CISO um, or the DPO um, can very often be looking at aspects which are under the, the CIO's control. Um, and it could be, you know, poacher and gamekeeper working in unison um, on that. So really you want a good segregation of duties and responsibilities there between the two. So in the same way, um, some organizations will have their, their CIO um, be the data protection officer. Um, again, I would recommend against that 
um, you know, except in uh, in the case of uh, smaller organisations, um, you know, where where you've got that kind of um, that kind of need or where you feel that's uh, that's appropriate, it may be worth looking at something like a, a data protection officer service just to provide that extra bandwidth um, and uh, and, a, and a better split and segregation of duties. Okay, so um, you know what? What are the next steps then? Um, you know, we've got you know ninety-seven and a half days. How, how can how can our, our listeners you know profit you know profitably you know maximise their time and leverage you know the resources that are out there to to make sure that they are compliant um, in in that time. Well, hopefully, um, you know, our regular listen, listeners, this will uh, not be a surprise to them or hopefully not a surprise to them. I think it's the first time that we've um, we've spoken on the podcast, Chris, about, um, you know, a list like this. But I think we've covered all of these subjects in previous podcasts. So there shouldn't be any surprises here um, for new listeners. Um, if any of this is a surprise or you need any help, obviously, you know, reach out to Fifth Step. Um, you know, we're more than happy to help. Um, if you need more information about what GDPR is, um, you know, go back through the, the library of um, GDPR podcasts and videos. There's lots of information that Fifth Step pushes out about uh, you know, information security and cyber security and data protection and IT leadership and change management, all those good things. That's all available on our website and the full library is available on our on our website. Um, if you download the podcast from iTunes or something like that, I think they give you the last 20 or 30 episodes, but all of the episodes are all available on, from the Fifth Step website. You can download them or listen to them in your browser from there. So if you need to get more information, look at it like that. I must, of course, do the plug for the, the little book of GDPR, which is available on um, from Amazon. And actually, the last few weeks, Chris, um, it's been number one in the business law section um, within uh, within Amazon. So um, really, oh, wow. uh, yeah. fame, fame at last, fame at, <laughs> indeed, indeed, <laughs> indeed, fame at last. So your, mag yeah. your, your magnum opus, or the yeah I, I yeah i don't uh, yeah i don't think so i don't quite think so but we'll um yeah we'll see it's, um it's serving a really good purpose for people people seem to be getting value out of it which is exactly what i intended when i wrote it so i'm very very pleased yeah, well, no, i've read it and i can attest to that i even understood some of it <laughs> there we go that's a stamp of approval um even, a, <laughs> even understandable by chris dom so yeah so um, Please do reach out if you've got any, you know, if you need any further help or any um, any additional information. There's lots on the Fifth Step website, but we genuinely are here to um, here to help organisations uh, become compliant and to understand the what seems like a very complex subject, but we'll boil it down and make it appropriate for the size of your organisation. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, thanks for that, Darren. Um, look forward to the next uh, next time we, we have a conversation about this, uh, which will no doubt. Um, We'll be having several more before uh, the uh, May uh, date. So uh, just once again, thank you very much. Thanks, Chris.